So I thought a lot, um, as I usually do before I give a talk about what would be a value to you. You know, so I was thinking all week, like, oh, what can I talk about? What do they need to know about? So the name of this talk is called Buddhas in the World. O oh, nobly born sons and daughters of the Buddha, remember who you are. I first heard that quote from Jack Cornfield at a retreat, actually, and it stuck in my mind. He read it, he'd read it somewhere in the sutras. And I liked it a lot. I loved it because I didn't have to get anything. It was like I was already divine. I just had to remember. And that seemed a lot easier than trying to get stuff, collect things. It was just, oh, remember, wake up to who I already am. So I liked that a lot. There's this story that I heard a while ago about a Buddha statue in Thailand. The statue was um, discovered, you could say. I'm not sure what part of Thailand it was in, but the statue was quite large, actually. And when you looked at it at first, it seemed kind of unattractive. It had this brown, um, almost like paint on it or something. And this monk, who was outside of a monastery, and this monk um, one day was doing walking meditation, actually. And he went up to this statue, and he scratched it a little bit. And lo and behold, underneath he saw gold. And so he kept scratching, kept scratching, kept scratching. And underneath this brown paint or this kind of... um, dirt or cement type of substance was a solid gold Buddha statue. And nobody knew that, you know, this was gold under it. And so they traced it back. And apparently, a couple hundred years maybe before, um, they thought they were going to be invaded. And they were so worried about this statue being taken or some harm being done to it that they put this veneer on it. They put this paint on it. And so then they forgot that it was gold underneath. No one told anyone. And so what looked like this kind of unattractive statue actually has become this legend. And people come. It's one of the most, um, it's the largest golden Buddha, one of them, in that area. So now it's this pilgrimage site and people come and they bow to it. So I like that story because it sort of reminds me of how we are. Inside, we're, we're golden, we're Buddhas, but it's like we don't really remember. Who are we really, and why can't we see this all the time? There's this other story I like a lot about that kind of speaks to the same thing about a poor man who lives in this house, and he spends all his life toiling in this little hut, But he didn't know that years before he built his house that some bandits came along and they were running away. They had stole some gold from the king and they buried it under his house. And one day, uh, a very wise being came along and he said, do you know under your house there's some gold? He walked by and he saw it. 
And he said, all you have to do is just dig right there. And so the man started digging, and sure enough, he found the gold. But by then, he was quite old, and he had lived his whole life in poverty, toiling away. And the Buddha said that we're like that. We're sitting on this gold, but we don't know it, and we spend our lives toiling, not really knowing the inheritance that we have. So who are we really? I would like to read something else to you. This is um, a beautiful description from Thich Nhat Hanh of the Buddha's enlightenment. Gautama felt as though a prison which had confined him for thousands of lifetimes had broken open. Ignorance had been the jailkeeper. Because of ignorance, his mind had been obscured, just like the moon and the stars hidden by the, st- hidden by the storm clouds. Clouded by endless waves of deluded thoughts, the mind had falsely divided reality into subject and object, self and other, existence and non-existence, birth and death, and from these discriminations arose wrong views, the prisons of feelings, cravings, grasping and becoming, the suffering of birth, old age, sickness and death only made the prison walls thicker. The only thing to do was to seize the jail keeper and see his true face. The jail keeper was ignorance. Once the jail keeper was gone, the jail would disappear and never be rebuilt again. So <laughs> I like that story. I, like, I love the story of the Buddha's awakening. I actually read it a lot and it inspires me. So what do we do with this? Here we are. We have Buddha nature. The Buddha said in all of us is the potential to awaken. It's not something that you don't have. It's right there all along. It's been with you since you arrived here. So how do we discover that? That's the question. Buddha, actually, we could relate to Buddha as the Buddha here, Shakyamuni Buddha. But Buddha actually is a state of mind. It means awakened one. When the Buddha first became enlightened and he was under the Bodhi tree, he sat for some time in amazement at what he had discovered. He then started off to go walk, and he went on a walk. He was actually looking for five ascetics that he had been practicing with in the forest. So he went walking, and this man came along and said, Oh my goodness, who are you? What are you? He said, Are you a god? Buddha said, No. He's like, are you some kind of celestial being? No. He said, then who and what are you? And he said, I'm awake. And that was all. I'm awake. Buddhas are, there's been thousands of Buddhas, they say, in the Tibetan tradition, thousands before the Shakyamuni Buddha, and there'll be thousands more after. Like, we, like I said, Buddha is a state of mind. So it's like we've forgotten who we really are. It reminds me of the story of Adam and Eve, how Adam and Eve, you know, the biblical story, they fell out of Eden and then couldn't find their way home. 
And it's like, well, what happened? How did they fall out of Eden? It's like they forgot who they were in some way. So my own story of how I found this path is really kind of interesting and sad a little bit. I realized at a young age um, it was going to be hard, (laughs) at least in my family. My parents uh, were actually breaking up when my mother was pregnant for me. And they fought the whole pregnancy. So my, mom, my mother always felt bad because I was so hot-tempered. She's like, I knew it was my fault. <laughs> so things were a struggle. We lived in Southern California. And I was born in Long Beach, but we lived on the East Long Beach-Compton border. So we lived in this little tiny apartment in this really, really bad neighborhood. <laughs> and so I kind of grew up with a lot of fear. You know, my mother was a single parent, and we had no money, and we were on welfare, and we lived in this little apartment in this building, and there was shooting and helicopters, and it was always something going on. And I remember my mother was terrified for me to go outside. So we spent our whole lives, my sister and I often laugh, looking out of the window, like (laughs) our front window watching everything happen. (laughs) So... Things kind of started there and got worse. And by the time I was a teenager, (laughs) um, I was really depressed. And my father, he was um, a drug addict. He was a beautiful man, but he just didn't know how to be here. And so he was um, addicted to cocaine. And so he kind of went on his own way. And um, so I really had to deal with myself when I got to be a teenager because due to our environment and moving around, a lot of things happened to me. A lot of things happened. And um, when I got to be a teenager, I had to deal with it and I fell into a deep depression. I fell into a depression so badly I couldn't get out of bed for months. It was like I was paralyzed with grief. All I did was just cry and cry. And I didn't, I knew that there was some potential, and I knew this couldn't be all there is, all that I had seen so far. This can't be how life is. Growing up in the neighborhood that I grew up in, everybody was so unhappy. It was like there was, it was so hopeless, and everybody was so angry. So that was difficult. That was all I had kind of been exposed to. My mother was beautiful, but she didn't know how to be a parent, so she really couldn't offer me much advice. So when the depression kind of lifted a little bit, I started studying, reading books, getting interested in meditation, and my path kind of started. And when I was 23, I went on my first meditation retreat. And that's when I heard Jack say the first night, oh, nobly born, remember who you are. And I was like, yes, something in me did remember. I was like, this is it? All that I've lived through, that's not it. That's something, but that's not it. There's more. There has to be more. I know there's more. And that knowing is what kept me at that retreat. And it was so hard. It was 10 days. And it was like, I battled. (laughs) It was as if the whole world came crashing down on me and at me. And I just sat through that fire. And it was in the desert. And it was hot. (laughs) 
and I would walk and the heat would come and I would just say, I can do this. And the tears and the anger and the sadness and the memories of who had done what and why and what is this about all came crashing down. But that somehow this mantra was in my mind, nobly born, nobly born. Yes, that's, that's it. Nobly born. So that was the turning point for me when I first did my first meditation retreat. And I had practiced, you know, even as a teenager, not knowing, just sitting, knowing, okay, I can get out of this somehow. My mind's doing this. So I had some kind of idea about it. So you could say at the end of that retreat, my journey really began. And I became a seeker. And that, oh, nobly born, remember who you are, was in my mind. And I was determined to find out who I was who I really was, not what people told me, and not what I had experienced. That wasn't me. That was just an experience. So there's this poem that I love a lot that I used to read all the time. It's by Mary Oliver. She's actually a Western poet. Some of you may know her. She writes so beautifully. So the poem actually is called The Journey. It says, One day... You finally knew what you had to do, and you began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble, and you felt the old tug at your ankles, men, my life, each voice cried. But you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations. Though the melancholy was terrible, it was already late enough in a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So I reflected on that poem a lot because here we are. We're here, we've started. Maybe this is the beginning of your journey or maybe it's been years you've been practicing But here we are again. So this remember who I am has been a powerful question. And I know for all of us, it's something that we have to discover. See, the truth is, is that we do, we are Buddhas, but we just have to remember. And the world desperately needs us to remember. We're in dark times. We are. Wars, violence, unspeakable poverty, injustice, inequality, environmental degradation, destruction, and racism. We're in difficult times. Our planet is out of balance, and we're out of balance because we've forgotten who we are. It's like we have this divinity within us, but nobody remembers. And if you can't remember it in you, you certainly will never 
see it in someone else. These kind of, you could say, out of balance um, things that are happening in the world with our policies, our government, is unbearable at some times. Marv's was reading about Joanna Macy's poem and the pain for the world. It's really real. What are we going to do? What can we do? When we don't know who we are, we harm ourselves and other people. That's true. I've seen that in my own practice. I've seen that in my life, and I've certainly seen that in others. This confusion over who we are leads to tremendous suffering. Greed, hatred, and delusion take over. We don't understand our own interconnectedness. We forget our own divinity. I was reading um, an article that just showed me how out of balance we are, and it sort of woke me up to my own uh, inertia that I needed to get going, I needed to start, I needed to do something. I was reading this article about how the U.S. spends a billion dollars a year on weight loss products and that Sudan, Chad, and Niger are on the brink of a famine. So here we spend all that money on trying to lose weight and these people have no food. That kind of balance, out of balance, is what's causing so much suffering. We just don't understand who we really are. So, okay, so it sounds a bit bleak. (laughs) A little depressing. (laughs) But it's true, though. It's true. This is really what's happening because we're not waking up. We don't understand. So how do we live? How do we live with this? How do we live with ourselves? The idea of a bodhisattva, or just the word bodhisattva, some people may know it, some people may not know it. Bodhi means enlightened. Safa means hero. So enlightened hero is, you can put it together. The Buddha was a great bodhisattva. I have so much uh, devotion for the Buddha, actually. I, I don't really, I feel shy showing it in the hall, but in my own way I do. In fact, there's a Buddha statue, just to tell you a quick story. There's a Buddha statue at the forest refuge, and it sits out on the deck. It's like a garden Buddha, and it's really big. It's green, and um, I was on retreat there for six months, and when I'd get really lonely, I would go sit in the Buddha's lap. (laughs) And not only that, I would kiss the statue. (laughs) And I would say, oh, Buddha, please help me remember who I am. It gets pretty lonely here when you're not talking. <laughs> but um, I, often kiss, I often kiss Buddha statues because um, the Buddha remembered and he pointed it out to all of us. And to me, that is a, the most important thing anyone could do is to remind me of who I am. Because I was really suffering. So this Bodhisattva, the Buddha, who was an tr- amazing Bodhisattva in the Tibetan text, 
different traditions differ, but um, they say that he lived thousands and thousands of lives with this aspiration to wake up for the benefit of all beings, and that he practiced working on love and compassion and equanimity, and he had this drive that was unbelievable, and it was out of compassion because he saw what we're seeing now and thought, what could I do? Oh, yeah, if I become a Buddha, I could tell people things. I could help them. And with that, he made this deep aspiration. The Bodhisattva path, um, it's a profound one. We're all Bodhisattvas because we're here. But making the intention to take it out in the world, to be a change in the world, is something different. Or even having the aspiration, may my practice be for the benefit of all beings, is incredibly profound. I think I was always a bodhisattva even when I was a child. I remember knowing something was wrong with my father when I was three years old. He had very erratic behavior. He would come in late. He would be yelling. Um, Even though my parents were breaking up, they stayed in touch. My mother tried to keep him in our lives and then at some point realized that it wouldn't be beneficial, so we didn't see him anymore. But when I was three years old, my mother told me that I came up to her and said, what's wrong with him? And then she said, sweetie, he, you know, he has this problem, he has a drug problem, and he's mentally unwell. And I said, I'm going to do something so I can help him one day. And it's funny, my dad got clean and sober about five years ago, and I taught him all about Buddhism, and I gave him a Dharma talk, and he really likes it, and he meditates now. <laughs> so... You never know, 30 years later, (laughs) when people are ready, you know, that's the right time. So it was really good. I was really happy about that. And also there was this time when I was 13 um, where it really was more profound. When I was 13, I got in trouble. I was shoplifting because we didn't have a lot of money. So I always wanted things, you know, how it is. And when you're in, you know, junior high school, you want this, you want that. So I had friends that stole So I got into this habit of stealing, and I got caught. And um, as part of getting caught, I was very, I felt horrible once I got caught, and I couldn't believe it, and my mother, you know, was upset. But anyway, I got community service. And um, my mother took me to this church in San Francisco called Glide Memorial. Some of you may have heard about it. It's a very dynamic church. It's in the Tenderloin, which is in a really rough neighborhood probably one of the roughest in San Francisco, and you have a lot of prostitutes and a lot of addicts and a lot of people roaming around, and it's just a lot of suffering. And so this um, Reverend Cecil, this amazing man, he built this church right there, and and they would serve dinners and they had clinics and uh, a ministry. And um, my mother told me, you know, every Saturday you're going to go there and work off your community service. I thought, okay, fine, you know, I'll go there. This time we had moved to the Bay Area from Los Angeles. So I actually liked the idea. It seemed fun to me to go there. It was exciting or something. So I went there, and um, I had to go in the kitchen, and they were serving food. Um, They have a big lunch every day, and they serve, I don't know, it's probably a couple thousand people. And they've been doing that for for a few years, quite like maybe 25 years. And so I was in the kitchen, and most of the people who work at uh, Glide, who do all the volunteer work, are people who had come through the doors that were former junkies, 
prostitutes. So these are people who have been saved. I mean, these are people who are full of love. They're like, I'm alive and I'm happy I'm alive. And, you know, I looked at these people and they, some of them didn't have teeth and scars and, you know, they were young and looked really old. And you know how you just seen people and you know they've been through a lot. And I remember being so excited. We were working in there and, and um, cooking and it was just, you know, beans and and um, and then they opened the door and all these people came in. It was like one person after the next. And I don't know where all these people were at. It was like within a half an hour, there was a line so long. And these people were coming in and I was serving them the beans. Like that was my job to put the beans on their plate as they come by. And I would look at each person and I was feeling so much compassion because they seemed so sad. And um, at the end of the day, after all the people had come and they had actually ran out of food, actually so many people, um, I just sat down for a long time and started crying. And that night when I went home, I, was, I, I thought about it all night. I was like, I have to do something. I don't know what, but I have to. And then, you know, I went on with my normal life after that was over and got involved whatever I, with whatever it was I was doing. But that seed was planted in me somewhere. So... Your practice here actually is helping our world. What you're doing right here is so beneficial. The more you uproot greed, hatred, and delusion, the less there is in the world. When you go home and you're more loving and caring, that impacts other people. It's a huge benefit. I hope you don't underestimate in any way the value of what you've done here. Sometimes I open my eyes and look out and I just get really moved. You're all so beautiful. And what you're doing is so profound and so needed. This is against the stream. This is breaking up. This is remembering who you are. This is going home. We need this. This is what people are looking for. I read this other article about how many people were on antidepressants. Why are we so depressed? Why is our country so depressed? We have everything. We have the most privileged people on the planet live here and they're the most depressed. This is profound. It's because we've forgotten who we are. So when you're filled with love, you affect others in a loving way. So another idea of this bodhisattva is the concept of uh, socially engaged being socially engaged, taking your practice out and engaging it in the world. So you move from your cushion out into whatever direction that you want to go. So you hear the term a lot, socially engaged Buddhist. (laughs) Marv and I actually teach a retreat um, for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And it's for the teens there. And uh, we always have a little component where it's socially engaged. When we talk about activism or we do a workshop and you know, they get really excited, like, what can I do? What can I do to help? You know, and that energy is so sweet. I just love it. And um, I think, God, you're the future. This is it. You know, things are going to get better. They're waking up. So the term socially engaged Buddhist, that's all it means, is taking your practice out, taking your metta out, hitting the streets, going in your communities, (laughs) on the bus, in your house, on the phone, at your job. That's it. Can we be Buddha there? Can we practice being Buddha there? 
That's the idea. You know, when we know who we are, compassion and courage naturally arise. When we remember who we are, it arises naturally for ourselves and others because we realize that person's just confused. They're Buddha too, they just forgot. How could I not have compassion for that? They're suffering. When we know who we are, we have unbelievable power. There's power in love and compassion and wisdom. People all over the world have led movements based in that. Sometimes I think our culture is so pessimistic, it's like we've lost touch with that, like that we can change things. Of course we can. This is our world. We can change it. Um, a book that I just finished reading um, that has actually been out for a while and I've heard about her, but it was a story about Julia Butterfly, the environmentalist. And uh, I'd been hearing about her for years. She actually comes to Spirit Rock. She practices there. And so people were like, Julia Butterfly, Julia Butterfly, have you, do you know about her? And I knew about this woman who sat for two years in a redwood tree, but I didn't really know her story. So somebody lent me the book, The Legacy of Luna. And um, it was a story about her. And you know, Julia Butterfly was a simple person. She went on what she thought was going to be a two-day tree sit. She was 23 years old. She climbed 50, wait, 180 foot tall California coast redwood tree. You know, and she just planned on sitting there for two days. She didn't plan on being the center of an entire environmental movement. She only had the idea to sit for two days. <laughs> Sounding familiar here with you all. <laughs> you don't know what your potential is. Please don't limit yourself. So as I was reading her book, I just was struck by her dedication and all that she went through in this tree. And believe me, she wanted to come down every day. It was a struggle. She was sick. She almost fell down. They tried, these companies tried to kill her. They sat at the bottom of the tree every day and called her every name they could think of. They played sounds, horrible sounds, night and day, trying to drive her crazy. But she just stayed. And she said, no, no, this is too important. That's a bodhisattva path. That's a bodhisattva. So now she's, you know, everywhere. And she actually started something. After she came down out of that tree, things began to change. People began to wake up. I also like another story I was reading about uh, a month or so ago about these college, uh, some college kids that actually started the civil rights, kind of started the first steps of the civil rights movement in the 50s in Alabama. They were just a group of four friends who got kicked out of this restaurant. Um, they were four African-American teenagers, and um, they got told they couldn't come in, and they got sick of it. And they were so scared, and they said, let's go in anyway. And they were like tentatively sitting down, and they knew, oh my God, we're going to get beat up, we're going to get arrested, and they did get beat up and arrested. And after they healed and their parents got them out, they did it again, and they did it again. These were ordinary people. Do you think they thought they were going to start an entire movement? Within a month, it caught on, and everybody across you know, the entire South was doing it. They were challenging these laws. This is just ordinary people. So 
That's another bodhisattva. Another bodhisattva. So Gao Rinpoche, he says, true spirituality is to be aware that we are in de- interdependent with everything and everyone else. Even our smallest, least significant thought, word, and action have real consequences throughout the universe. Throw a pebble into a pond, and it sends a ripple that creates another one and another one. So we don't know what our actions, what little actions, what big effects they could have. We don't know. So we can see that in this world, especially with violence, that one violent action creates another. You know, when we were here the first night, we got into this conversation about Israel and Lebanon, and oh my gosh, and this fighting is leading to this, and this group does this, and and how it's just fueling it. One action leads to another. But you see, the idea is that one positive action leads to another. One person waking up leads to another person waking up. You all leaving here telling other people inspires them, and so on and so on and so on. So I got sad that night, but I started to think, you know, that's okay because we're here and we're waking up. We're remembering this is the counter to that. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, In today's highly interdependent world, individuals and nations can no longer resolve many of their problems by themselves. We need one another. We must therefore develop a sense of universal responsibility. It is our collective and individual responsibility to protect and nurture the global family, to support its weaker members, and to preserve the environment in which we live. Hmm. I like that because we're all together in this. We're all here. Just like we're in this room, we're on this planet. We all want the same things. We all want happiness. We all want, we all want joy. So I guess in some ways, this talk is really about trying to inspire you to know who you are and to know what you're capable of. Sometimes I get so sad because I think, you know, we have this sickness of self-hatred and self-loathing and it becomes in our way and it holds us down. Like I couldn't get out of bed because I had that. But some people have it for years and years And I think if we knew who we all were, it'd be so beautiful. So we have infinite possibilities. This is our world, and we can be the force of change. You know, we talk a lot about, I mean, in our interviews, people have talked a lot about integration. So you can do anything. I hope you know that. People often wonder about well, how do I really take this out? Does this mean if I'm a Buddhist that I have to live at a center, cook tofu, and that's all I can do? Be a teacher. We laugh about this. No, be in your world. You don't have to go out to a mountain. Be in your life. Be whatever you want to be. Be an artist. Be a singer. Be a business person. Somebody last night, a yogi, said, I'd like to be the president. That's beautiful. That is what we need. But do it responsibly. Do it with wisdom and compassion. You can do anything. There's nothing outside of that scope. There's nothing not Buddh- There's nothing un-Buddhisty that you could do. <laughs> it's all part of it. 
Do you know what I mean? How we can get this idea that we have to live a certain way and then we limit ourselves and then we don't really want to practice. You know, we don't really want to stay in a box like that. Think outside of the box. We need people in every area of this society doing everything, but doing it mindfully, doing it and being awake. Live in this world. Have wisdom and compassion as your weapons and your guides. Someone in this room could be the next Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa. We don't know. We don't know where this journey is going to take you. I couldn't have told you I would wind up sitting here from where I started, from what I experienced. And from what I went through in my own practice, it was hard. But I wouldn't trade a moment of it. Because that's what I needed. This path is so profound. I hope you stay on it. When you leave here, practice as much as you can. If you can't sit, take a step mindfully. Try to just stop every two hours and take one breath mindfully. There's so many ways to practice. Dance mindfully. You know, be in your life mindfully. You know, hug your friends mindfully. It doesn't always have to be sitting on the cushion. It can be in every way. Every place is a place to be awake. Every place is a place to be aware. There's nothing left out. And there's no no place that mindfulness can't take you. Your awareness is your protection. If you're awake and you're aware, you can do anything. And if you remember your divinity, you have all the power you need. So, I think that is all I have to say. That's all I wanted to share. I hope it was beneficial. So let's just sit for a moment. O nobly born, remember who you are. You are the sons and the daughters of the Buddhas. Awaken and remember your true nature. Thank you for your attention.